since we are in Hebrews 9 today, as, as we have been going a chapter a week, and this is a particularly deep chapter, there's a lot of meat on the bone. So I'm going to ask you to allow this sermon to be an introduction to it, but by no means uh, am I unpacking everything in the book, so in the chapter. So go back to Hebrews 9 a few times this week. All of the songs that Keith picked for us, and thank you, Keith, were to lead us to Hebrews 9. As often happens in, in many books, but in the book of Hebrews it happens, and Romans too, so often. I think the chapter break was made at the wrong point. So we're going to go back and start this with Hebrews 8.31, and then read forward, if we could, please. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table. This is important. I know it can be a bet, but it's important. And a table with the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Lampstand, bread. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and a gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of, of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Something is happening when the, Hebrew, or the writer of Hebrews is writing. Something's happening. Remember that the tabernacle as the temple later, was to be a representation of heaven. We talked about last week how some churches, especially in the Orthodox faith, and somewhat, well, not somewhat, quite a bit, in the Roman Catholic faith, are built to usher you into heaven. As you start, you're brought in by the light, you're brought in by a reminder of the sacred in what you see before you, but also in the holy water that you're to cross yourself with. And then as you approach, minor saints, major saints, Mary, and then the Trinity. You're, this is to make you think of heaven. And if you've ever been overseas and you've gone through a, a cathedral, Cologne or Notre Dame or any of these, you, you heard your guide continually tell you, look up, look up. Do you remember that? In fact, it can even become a joke after a while, but it's not look up. Up's where all the interesting stuff is. Go uh, rent the old uh, black and white movie, The Agony and the Ecstasy. I always thought that, well, he's thinking, I think it was black and white. That's the only telly we had when it came on. If it's in color, it, that would have made it uh, less impressive to me because I kept thinking, Michelangelo's painting that in colorblind. Uh, but it turned out well. I think we can all, uh, I, you know, so I appreciate They didn't go to paper it over later. The, it's, the whole thing is this is your approaching God act appropriately. You have light in the first room. Light, lampstand. Well, who comes first? We have Jesus, John chapter 1. He is the light. And the whole gospel of John is a battle between light and darkness in which one we will let win. And this, this is where it's easy to say, in your life. Eh. Will we let light and darkness, which one will we let when in this situation? 
Now the next situation. Now the next situation. Because we don't, this isn't talking about who crosses the finish line first. This is talking about who gets to reign in every moment. Is it light or darkness? What are you bringing to the table? Light or darkness? And that's the first thing you meet when you walk into the holy place. And then you have the consecrated bread that was dedicated to God. Bread's a big deal in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in most places of the world. Bread or whatever substitute it might be like rice, that's what keeps you alive. There are people that will tell you, if we don't have these dozens of micronutrients in perfect balance, and if we don't have the, we won't survive. Have you seen what most of the world lives on? And they live. We lived over a shop. Uh, the last house we lived in in Scotland, we'd moved about the place, but we lived over a shop. And every, every morning, we watched the kids going off to school, and they'd have their money for their lunch, but it never made it to school. They'd pop in the spar shop underneath, and uh, they would buy the world's worst candies. The things that make pixie sticks look like health food. And if you don't know what pixie sticks are, some of you young folk may not know which, and that breaks my heart, frankly, because it was diabetes in a tube. <laughs> you, you didn't have to work on diabetes, you could just have it. And, 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 but this is what they ate. And, they you'd walk, them all, they'd walk off all this stuff in their hands and they're chewing in their mouth. And I looked at my wife and I said, you know what the amazing thing is? Tomorrow, they'll be alive. <laughs> Bread. We need food, but we don't need all the fancy bits. We need, need some food. So... We have the consecrated bread. We ask him for our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. And we eat the bread when we take communion. And we call it communion. By the way, the, the Bible does not give it a name. And we should be comfortable with whatever it's called, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, Holy Communion. We should be comfortable with all of those terms because they all are an attempt to, to explain this is the meeting of heaven and earth. Do you remember? What happens through our lives is to reflect what is going on in heaven. Let your will be done. This, on earth as it is in heaven, this is our job. We are communing with God. We are in community with God. An old saying is, show me your friends and I'll show you your character. Now, like all old sayings, there's Generally true, but a lot of issues with it in some specific situations. Here's what we can say. Christians who are in community with God must reflect God. They must reflect light in whatever situation in which they find themselves. His flesh is now our communion. So we enter the holy place through him. At the time this book was written, there was still a most holy place behind the second curtain. Uh, just real quick, it is amazing how fast things become, oh, this is absolute truth, because preachers spread it. And one of those things is now the high priest could only go in there, only he could go in there, true so far. But if he died when he was in there, the only way to get him out was before he went, he tied a rope to his ankle. Have you heard that one? And whenever he goes in, if he dies, they'll, they'll pull him out. No. Completely made up. In the Middle Ages, that kind of thing just 
fascinates me and makes me happy for some reason. I'm not really sure. But I, I love people who hear, the, hear a great story, and you know what would make it better? A rope. Anyway, moving along, only the highest priest would go in there. There was still that place, but there was most likely nothing inside. You see, the, in the old days, the Ark of the Covenant would have been in there. His, and inside was Aaron's rod that budded. Just look up the story. We don't have a lot of time for that this morning. A jar of manna. Again, the same food every day, but it kept them alive. It moved them forward. How, how many of us, back in a day when you only got to go out to eat once or twice a year, because it was a very special thing, right? And therefore, you had to eat what was out the garden or eat what somebody slipped through your door. That's why you lock your doors during zucchini season. Uh, they, they, when you finally, you finally get, you get your food, we ate leftovers for 16 years. The original meal had never been located. <laughs> I cannot remember saying a prayer thanking God for food that I hadn't thanked him for at an earlier meal. But, and then when somebody invented Tupperware, we all just looked at each other and went, it'll never end. Uh, there's just, we're, it's, anyway. That wasn't in the notes. Okay, hang on. Um, there was a manna, there was a stone tablets that God had written the law upon. And on top were the cherubim, who the scripture um, describes, and sure it's symbolic and, and the like, of having six wings. And they were kneeling, the representations were kneeling on top of the Ark of the Covenant with their wings stretched out, and that formed the mercy seat. And this was the most holy place. But by this time, the Ark was gone. The writer says, we cannot discuss these things in detail now. We do not have the exact time that the Ark went missing. But sometime, it probably hundreds and hundreds of years before this time, the ark was gone. Some argue for 150 years before this time. That's as close as they get it. The ark drops out. You never see it. You never hear it mentioned again as a reality. You will hear it mentioned, for example, in passages like this, as a symbol of what was to come. See, the Jews had been in captivity. The temple had been raided repeatedly. People who were evil, who had no, no concept of holy or most holy, had entered the place and taken the things of God. Now, what do we do? What do we do without this? Remember Hebrews 8, 13, he says, the law's not obsolete, it's just disappearing. It's fading away. It's not going away because it was bad. It's going away because a new law has come. And the pieces and relics of the old law are now scattered. They are now lost to us. Today, various Christian sects and Muslim, Muslim groups, both, own bits and pieces of the Temple Mount. And they debate and fight each other fiercely over every tile. Now, that's not an exaggeration. If you go there, you, or you can look this up, but if you go there... It is very obvious which this is the Armenians, this is the Coptic, this is this Muslim group, and they will attack if, you, if one of the wrong people steps in the wrong place. 
so sad. But even now, there's a sense of the holy if you go there. We changed a bit. I think I'm still on, right? Uh, those, uh, they're complaining because they can't hear me. Um, that, that happens all the time. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, there should have been more laughter there. They, <clears throat> there's still this sense of the holy because wherever God walks, he leaves tracks. Wherever he steps, he changes things. Now look at Hebrews 9, 6 through 10. When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time. Indicating gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Wow, what a phrase. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations applying until the time of the new order. I've had people say a lot of things about the Old Testament, comparing it to the new, and, and frankly, I parroted some of these things in my youth, saying things such as the Old Testament was about law, the New Testament is about grace, and that's just not true. The Old Testament is full of grace. It's saturated in grace. And that the law was inadequate and this, it's, that's not true. People were inadequate. We need to back away from this a little bit, but there is one thing we can say. The old law had a lot more externals than the new law because the old law's externals were supposed to help people move it to the internal. And by the time of Christ, he, he does away with the externals. Now the law lives in us. You, we are told by Paul, are the temple today. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is not a place we go to where we all have to make a trip to Jerusalem once a year or once in our life. No. We don't have a, we don't have a big stone to go out and look at in the desert. Everything's in here now. It's all in the heart. And that reflection is who we are supposed to be, and that's our job. But I have a question. Did you notice in this, the high priest enters the most holy place never without blood. That phrase is just haunting. When he goes in, what does he do? He offers praise and asks for forgiveness for the people's sins that year. But didn't, weren't they already doing that? Weren't they already bringing sacrifices? If you read the Old Testament, it's full of sacrifices. Again and again, all through the year, why would he then have to go do it again? Were all those earlier sacrifices worthless? Not at all, no. The sacrifices did many things for them during the year, but could not cure their conscience. It could not fix what they had broken. They were united as a people by the sacrifices. They were reminded of their God. They were reminded of their status in the universe. I'll break that down for you. The two major facts of the universe. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him. 
and the sacrifices and the cost and the amazing complexity and the amount of time pulled away to do this sort of thing was all there to remind us of who we were. We are not God. Watched a video recently where a woman tried to argue in a large group that the phrase facts don't care about your feelings, which by the way is very often used intended to hurt people. I'm aware of that. She said, my feelings are greater than your facts. And she went on trying to explain all of this. And I keep going, physics doesn't care. You know, gravity doesn't care what you feel about it. Yesterday, I reached into the pantry and I pulled off about eight sh- uh, jars. We're fortunate only one broke. I'm standing there. I would have blamed it on an earthquake or something like this, but Cammy was sitting right there. <clears throat> I, at that moment, not a fan of gravity. My feelings didn't matter. We, the, all the sacrifices was to show you don't get to decide what's a sin. You don't get to decide what good is. You don't get to decide the rules of the universe. You are the people of God, but you're still the people. And God's still the God. Wow. I don't know. I I really don't know about you. Ministers often say that when they really do know about you. I don't know about you. I don't know your day. But there are so many times a day I have to be reminded I'm not God. He often does it when I'm driving in Nashville during rush hour when nothing's moving. Why don't we call it sit in the interstate and listen to the radio hour or hours. I, um, I can remember when we lived on rural roads and it wasn't any better then, by the way. It, re- it just wasn't. Because every time you'd get out and drive, there would be at that time, yes, back in the day, always a Dodge Dart. Not sure why. Or a, one of the varieties of Buick in front of you going slow. Four AAA stickers in the back. No human discernible. There was a hat. You can see a hat. And every time, older people remember this, every time there was a straight bet, they'd speed up a bit. And another car would be coming so you couldn't pass them, right? I told my wife, I said, one of these days when I get to heaven, God's first day orientation, he's going to pull me around the back of the house There's going to be a Dodge Dart on blocks. He's going to say, that was me. The whole time. To remind you, you're not in charge. I get that. And I only get it because I need it. God reminds me because I need it. So, if we are the people of God, what are we supposed to do? We are to care for the poor as a reflection of God's care for them. Love our enemies, for God loves them. This constant reflection of God, that's our job. Reflect. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, please. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here. Now remember, some things are disappearing. The ark is gone. There are so many good things that are gone. But now something is appearing. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that'd be up there, the one not made with human hands, that is to say, not a part of this creation, and that always fascinates me. 
But he, he came by means, there, thank you. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. We're going to stop right there, hold the slide. On the, remember when Jesus was crucified, what happened to the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place? It was ripped with invisible hands right when everybody would have been gathered around it because that was a celebration day. And at sunset, it was always designed to where at sunset, the light would strike the curtain of the most holy place. There'd be great applause at that time in history. The light strikes, it's ripped. God has said, I'm, no, not anymore. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Outwardly. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. It moves inside now. In the sacrifices, you could only bring your best to God. And let's say you lived a bit away. And, and some of you are old enough to remember when 10 miles and 20 miles was the other side of the mountain, and they may as well be aliens over there, because you're not going to see them. The world was not as mobile as it is today. Well, you find the best, the best you've got, the best cow, best sheep, whatever, whatever you're bringing to offering. Now, you've got to get this on the road. You, it's, you, I just don't see anybody affording a cart at this stage in, in the history of Israel so, or, or Judah. So you have to get that sheep, the, the, the best one or the calf, all the way there without a blemish. If it cuts itself, if it gets messed up, if it runs away and gets a scar, on, whatever it is, you, you don't have a sacrifice. It has to be perfect unblemished. And whenever those periods of time were that, uh, for example, Pentecost, Passover, and the like, where people are streaming toward Jerusalem, you're going to see family units guarding their sacrifices. They're moving. And the older boys were tasked with making sure the sacrifice made it unblemished. You would have been hearing them say a phrase repeatedly, watch the lamb, watch the lamb. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, the roads would have been packed with people going with their sacrifice. And John the Baptist gets everybody's attention and points to Jesus. And he said, watch the lamb. Now you know what that phrase meant. And now you know why their jaws would have dropped, their hearts would have leapt. I still get goosebumps whenever I do that. That I that, watch the lamb, unblemished. He made the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice greater than any we could bring. Hebrews 9.15 For this reason, Christ is the mediator, great word that, of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus' sacrifice forgave all sins, backwards and forwards. 
He, that's what God does. God forgives. God doesn't go through history smiting people like Thor. I don't know about the comics. I'm going to the Norse legends. The, uh, he doesn't go, he's not the Billy Sunday God of early in American broadcasting history. Um, look him up. He's a really fascinating character. And by fascinating, I mean horrific. He was, he was one of the, the most popular preachers of his day. And Billy Sunday would preach hell every day, and it was coming for you. One time he even talked about how God holds sinners over hell like holding a handful of worms over a skillet and drops them in with glee because they're getting what they deserve. Have you read the Bible? God doesn't do that. God sends his own son to block anything from getting you into the skillet. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Job once called for a mediator. The word he used was a days man that indicated somebody, and i got to do this really quick because it's a long story. Um, it indicated there was, a, um, there was a dispute that needed to be settled. And whatever that dispute said, let's say, for example, that, um, that my brother Albert here hired me to do something in his lawn, and we agreed on a price of 300 but whenever I come, I say, no, no, you, you said 1500 Well, how are we going to settle this? Back in the day, we would have to find somebody we both respected. Maybe we'd get Mr. Jimmy to, to be between us, and for him to decide at the end of the day whose case was right. Now, here's the thing. Mesopotamian records are very, very detailed about this, and we have a lot of them because they like to write everything down. If at the end of the day, Albert and I still could not agree, by agreeing to step between us, Mr. Jimmy would be on the hook for the rest of the money. But you only had one day to sort it out. There weren't any of these trials that go an hour, uh, rather a, a, a year, and you wait for another two years. They didn't have time for that. They had to eat. They had to work to eat every day. She had a days man, and some we've we found a few representations of days men in pictograph or a picture uh, carved into stone in Mesopotamia. And they would put one hand on one of the disputants and one on the other until the case was solved. Does this look familiar to anybody in the room? Jesus is our mediator because he stepped between and he bridged the gap. He's the only one who can. Because to bridge the gap, you have to be human and divine. You have to be bound by time and unbound in eternity. You have to be of the earth, and you have to be completely not from the earth, not from the universe. He was the perfect one to step in and say, death is no more. I've got you. Do you remember we talked about, when, especially when these pews were gone, remember those days so long ago? Many of you found your, your way home. I know where you are now. We would call, I use this as an illustration of the Valley of Elah, that valley of decision. Death or life, which do you want? Light or darkness, which do you want? Hebrews 9 says, death is no longer, uh, I'm sorry, sin. I'm going to back up and do this again. I got this right. I read a book once. Sin is no longer there because death has been removed. Death is the driver of sin. This is how that works. 
we are constantly aware of a clock. We're constantly aware of aging. We're constantly aware that we're running out of time. And so we've got to have our joy now. That, that, that just doesn't hit, you know, 60, 80, 90, 100-year-old people. That hits teenagers, of course. It hits little kids in Chick-fil-A. It hits, you know, whenever they, they, they're not going to get the ice cream or whatever it is. And it's like, my life is over. I'm three. It was a good run. But now I shall fall here and die. You never get out of that stage. You never do. I was beside a lady once when the kid was kicking and squalling against the candy counter at Kroger. And I, I just looked at the mom and she looked at me. I wasn't looking mean or anything. I wasn't in a hurry. Um, I didn't have cable. This was interesting. And she looked, she goes, he's going through a phase. And I looked at her and I said, we all are. When I hear a kid screaming and crying on an airplane and the mama apologizes, I'll go, no, 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 no. They're doing outside what everybody here is doing inside. <laughs> so when Jesus appears and says, guess what? You don't have to get all your joy in this life. You don't have to have all your jollies in this life. Wonderful things are coming and you don't have to see them because they're going to come later. We can pull back and relax. We don't have to look at our wife and go, oh, there's a wrinkle. I've got to find another one. Or husband. Works the other way, I'm told. Um, haven't been a woman, don't know. Uh, so the, the whole point is, we don't have to panic. Go ahead and grow old. It's all right. You ever, the people that have so much plastic surgery because they're afraid somebody will know they're old, we know. <laughs> we know. You know, Joan Rivers, my goodness. She had so much. Remember that dimple? I went down. That was her belly button. You can only lift. You can, and, and, and again, I'm sorry for her. Something in her made her think she was only valuable if she looked young. And that's tragic. How sad. She must have been haunted by that. And I wish she'd had better friends. I don't know how I could have reached out to her. But I wish we all had friends enough to say, you earned that wrinkle. That's a good thing. Do it. My wife constantly says that I, I frown. I don't understand what she means. And then I'll come home after being outside and there'll be white lines. And I'm thinking, you know, I earned those. I'm taking them. Don't, don't, don't ever touch those things. This is not a vicarious atonement story where there was an angry God and Jesus leapt between him and a skeleton and grabbed us. No. By defeating death, he defeated sin and our panic that we're not going to get it all now. Let's read Hebrews 9, 16 through 22. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. We're all tracking here. This stuff we know about. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires... That nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
something we don't often talk about, we really, you might want to think about, when he sprinkles them, it's a, these are branches, very leafy branches, and he's sprinkling everybody with droplets of blood. You're wearing clothes. These may be the only clothes you have. Most likely they are the only clothes you have. They don't have spot treatment. Every day when you put on your clothes, you would see the spots. Every day a reminder, the spots. We are to be a holy people before a holy God, even then a reflection of heaven. The thing is, the altar tried to show them how sinful, how ugly sin was. Are you, have you ever seen pictures of the altar and it looks pretty cool? It didn't look cool. The Bible required that it was be made out of uncut, undressed stone, and you were never allowed to clean it. All those years of burning animals, melting fat, burning hair, all of that stuff stuck there, stinking, never clean it. Why? To remind ourselves that's what we look like when we sin. That's what sin is. Sin is not, adultery is not having an affair or a fling. It's adultery. We, we dress up the words with, you know, I misspoke. Well, you might have, but it sure seemed to be a lie. Watch out. Sin looks ugly. God calls us to reflect light, not that. So we don't live at an altar. We walk away. Our sacrifice has been done. Our sacrifice is good. We need to wrap this up. I just saw the clock. Probably should have looked earlier. We need a deacon who that's their only job. Just back there. <clears throat> Hebrews 9, 23, please. It was necessary then, reflecting back to the last verse, there's no forgiveness without blood. For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in God's presence. People, if all I had to get me through the day was Hebrews 9.24, I'd get through the day. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. I'm going to, because it's going to be a little bit of a traffic jam, Keith, I'm going to let you start bringing your people back up, and I'm going to go off here to this wing, if I can, to step out the way afraid to go any further because I don't know about feedback yet, all right? That feedback's not whether you like the sermon. It's, a, it's an acoustical. <laughs> we can do without some of your feedback. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so now what happens? When we are seen by God, he doesn't see the altar stinking, caked with filth, 
and blood. He sees his son. Whenever our, our grandkids, we get pictures of the grandkids, what do you do with pictures of the grandkids? Same thing you did with pictures of your own kids. Who do they look like? Well, what does that look like you? Does this look like me? We even call a couple of our grandkids, you know, we'll say that that's Kara's mini-me, or that's Duncan's mini-me. I remember when I took Duncan, and he was just a wee boy, I don't know, maybe three years old, to, to see my mom. She looked at and she just put her arm around, and she could barely talk for a while. And I looked at her, and I said, Mom, what is it? She goes, it's like I have my son back. It sounded real sweet, and then I thought, wait, Mom, I'm right here. Uh, what? <laughs> And, and it was kind of like, nah, you know, 2.0 is better. And I, I understand. Jesus has taken care of the reason we sin. He, and he, he just removed it. Death is gone. Our slavery to sin is gone. Our commitment now is to be a reflection of heaven in every situation. Light, forgiveness, right here, right now, all the time. We do this not only by our communion, but also by baptism, which you saw today. I'll read this, and then we'll be done. Would you stand with me, please? Galatians 3, 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law. That sounds really bad. It doesn't mean that. It just somebody was watching over us. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. We've been adopted. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Do you believe the promise, church? If you believe the promise, live what you say you believe.